Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Well, spring has finally sprung, at least for the most part, and the northern hemisphere is now tilting toward the sun, which is why we start to get longer, sunnier days, and why many people start gardening and, and sow seeds this time of year. Joining us now with some tips for how to go about that is Pete Morosky, a nurseryman and environmentalist and the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York, uh, and a regular on our show. We invite you to call us now with your gardening questions. Our on-air number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Hello, Pete. Welcome back to our show. Oh, thank you, Leonard. It's great to be back on this beautiful, sunny, warm spring day. It almost feels like summer out there today. Well, we've had some odd weather recently, cold, wintry days, followed by rather mild days, lots of snow and rain, and then long stretches of no precipitation. What effect will that have on, on perennials, for example? Well, Leonard, you know, we're going through, as we all know, climate change, um, you know, each decade has been getting warmer since the 1980s. And, you know, it's having a, a slow effect on a lot of our uh, plants that are, that are in our garden. Now, what I think is affecting a lot of our plants even more, like you said, are these extremes that we're having in our weather. You know, for instance, take us this year. We had uh, a very snowy January, uh, a very snowy December no snow in January and a very snowy February, no snow in March. And then April was very, very cold. In fact, last week we had 18 degrees up here in Dutchess County, which is very cold for April as, as the buds are starting to open up. And even across the country, Leonard, this, the, the weather is getting a little bit strange. I mean, look what happened in Texas this winter. Uh, you know, they had the, some of the coldest weather they've had in since they've been taking records. And even up in the, in the Rocky Mountains uh, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, which, which is accustomed to snow, they had the snowiest day on record this winter. So the weather is is battling, and it's it's it, it, it's it's battling the warm is battling the cold, and uh, you know perennials. You mentioned perennials. Uh, you know when when it gets warm and cold, uh, you know the, the the ground thaws and then it freezes again, and and you know that that affects perennials. But the good thing about perennials is as long as you got a nice blanket of mulch on top of them, they're going to stay. They're going to stay dormant until uh, until they're ready to pop out of the ground. Oh, even with this crazy weather, I've been seeing wild crocuses popping up all over the place. Right. Crocuses, you know, and, you know, we've talked about this last time, you know, as our spring bulbs come up, so, so do our deep woods femorals that you get out there in the deep woods, some of our uh, uh, bloodroot and, and, and trout lilies. You know, what a great time of year to go hiking in the woods because all these native perennials, these early spring native perennials are popping up out of the ground uh, just before the leaves come out on the trees. And, they, and, and they're, the first, they're the first flowers that, that really uh, our, our native bumblebees tend to go to, to to get some nectar. But if we uh, go hiking in the woods, what impact will this weird weather have had on the ticks and other insects that come with spring? Well, I can tell you uh, of my uh, first experience that the ticks are, 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 are crazy out there this year. Um, we've had already. an average. Well, they're, they're already, yes, they're all over the place. They're, um, excuse me, they're all over the place and, and they're coming up. And, you know, I, I, I generally go out there with my dog. So I'm, I'm, I'm checking my dog uh, every time we go out. And uh, yeah, they're they're doing their thing right now. You know, a lot of insects are 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 hatching and are emerging, and uh, a lot of it is a good thing because a lot of these insect hatches are also affiliated with migrating birds. And you know, bird, when birds get to this area, you know, they want to they want to time the, uh, the the mayflies or the midge flies so that they got some good eats by the time they get to New York. Well. Um... Is, is spring the best time to plant in our area uh, because uh, or spring like this where we're going to have another cold spell really soon? Well, it wasn't know, the, the, old, the old rule, no planting until May 15th? Well, that's when it comes to vegetables and, and, and a lot of your tender annuals. 
you know, when it comes to landscape planting of trees, shrubs, uh, perennials, you know, you can plant now. And to answer your question, yes, spring is the best time to plant because whenever we plant anything right now, it has the whole season or the whole growing season to acclimate to its new home. So, you know, it, it can develop roots, it can, it, it can, it, it can develop in its, in its new location. And uh, it's just, it's, it, it's, it's able to acclimate and, and, and become a little bit more healthy and, and adapted to our crazy weather once that hits again in the fall. So, but, but spring frosts will, should not be a concern if we start putting things like arugula and spinach into the ground now? Well, some vegetables can tolerate a, a frost. Uh, like you said, uh, spinach, carrots, arugula, uh, a, a lot of the kales, you know, they can tolerate a little bit of frost, but be careful with things like tomatoes and a lot of your tender type vegetables because, uh, you know, there's a rule of thumb, uh, you know, you want to you wanna put them out after the last killing frost. And up here in... Uh, in the lower Hudson Valley, we're talking about, you know, late May around Memorial Day, New York City, we're talking about mid-May, anywhere south of New York City, we're talking about early May. So you really got to stay on top of, uh, you know, nighttime temperatures. And if, and if you run into a problem where you do plant them too early, there are a couple of things you can do to try to keep your plants alive, you know, watering them, you know, by, you know, let's say, uh, you know, you, you know, like last year, we had a, a hard frost in the beginning of June, which really uh, knocked the heck out mm -hmm. of a lot of our fruit trees uh, buds. Uh, but what they do, what they do in these orchards and what you can do at home is uh, you can water the garden very thoroughly at uh, sunset. And what that does is uh, a little, the little bit of heat, that turns water from a liquid to a solid uh, will 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 keep the flesh of the plant alive, and then even covering some plants if the plants get if the temperature gets really low, like down into the low twenties. So as you said we shouldn't plant everything outdoors. Should we plant tomatoes and pepper seeds and uh, broccoli and herbs indoors? Now is the time to do that. Yes, get get a jump start on that. Get them up four or five inches. And uh, get them ready to go outside come next month. Exactly. That's what you should be doing now if you got the time. Does it matter when you plant if you are an apartment dweller who doesn't have uh, an outdoor garden? Well, you know, it, you got a lot more control if you're an apartment dweller because you can bring plants inside from inside to outside the house. Or uh, are you talking about putting vegetables on the sills? And, yeah. And, and let Yeah. No, that doesn't matter. As long as you got strong Do it now. sun, yeah, now is the time. You can you can start your plants now. And just remember, you know, there's a little there's a thing called positive phototropism. When you put plants on sills or on windows, they're going to try to grow and reach toward the sun. So every couple three days, spin that plant around so that it it grows straight up and it, it and it doesn't tilt uh, out the window. Here's a reminder that we are inviting listener calls. Our number here is 212-209-2877. If you, want, uh, if you have questions about uh, planting and, and the like for Pete Morosky, uh, you say that spring is the best time to plant trees, shrubs, and perennials. Do we just dig holes and, and stick these things in the ground? Well, Do we, should we prepare the soil in some way? Well, there's a lot of different thinking when it comes to planting trees, shrubs, and perennials in the landscape. You know, Cornell is telling us now not to plant so much uh, fertilizer and compost into the hole right off the get-go because, and they're telling us to wait two or three years before you put any kind of fertilizer uh, into the soil because you want these plants to acclimate to their, their new home. If you were to plant a whole bunch of fertilized, if you were to put a whole bunch of fertilized soil in and around a tree or a shrub that you just planted, these roots get out there and they get into this fertilized soil and they're having a great old time. And two or three years later, they get out into the native soil and they say, hmm, that soil that was right around the roots of my plant are a lot better. And they'll come back and they'll turn around and go back into that, that good soil. And that creates uh, you know, a, a, a girdling situation and it creates an unhealthy environment. So, 
you know, there's a couple of there's a couple of tricks. Okay, uh, you, you want to plant them and you want to give them a lot of water and you want to give them you know time to grow because Mother Nature is not like starting a computer. She 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 has her own way of doing things and a lot of times it it takes a lot longer for a plant to establish in your garden than it uh, you know in, in the springtime, especially when it gets cold like this. Another thing, Leonard, we should bring up when it comes to planting trees and shrubs in our garden, and I see this a lot. People tend to plant too deep. They got to understand that there's an air transfer that goes on between surface roots and 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 the and the tree and shrub itself. And you want to make sure <clears throat> that the plant is either sitting at grade or sitting a little bit above grade. So a you got good drainage, and b those surface roots can breathe and and become uh, you know become healthy and and, and support the plant. Now, you said not to use fertilizer right away. What about compost and mulch? You can. That is something I would prefer that uh, people use before fertilizers, because a lot of the fertilizers are too quick of a shot. Compost and mulch, you know, that's what you that's what you use as a as a mulch on top of the uh, soil. Once that plant gets in the ground, you mulch it. And, that you know, mulch does a million things. It holds moisture in the ground. It slowly decomposes and becomes fertilizer. And that's if you use the right mulch. And then it, it also shades the ground so you don't get that freezing and thawing. And let's, while we're on the subject, Leonard, let's talk about mulch a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. there's so many different types of mulch. You know, you go to garden centers, there's black mulch. I've seen green mulch. I've seen pink mulch. What you want to do, if, if you really care for your plants and you want your plants to really be robust, you need to use mulch that, 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 ha, that you want to mimic, mimic Mother Nature, so to speak. You want to bring in mulch that is, you know, have some uh, leaf mold in it. Now, what is leaf mold? Leaf mold is that decomposed leaves that you see in the woods or in around our, 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 our properties that breaks down and becomes this beautiful black soil. So you want to use a mix of that with shredded bark, with a little bit of compost, and that'll go a long way. And if you do that, Leonard, you don't even have to use fertilizer because that's the natural way of, of giving your plants uh, nourishment. Well, many people do their own mulch, but I've always been uh, <laughs> concerned about what is acceptable and what isn't. Is it mostly just like uh, vegetable peels and, uh, I don't know, leftovers, things uh, uh vegetables and and uh, and fruits and not uh we, do we put any animal products in no you want to stay paper away from, uh some of the ink can be a problem uh you want to stay with as, as natural uh as you can for instance you know vegetable table scraps except for meat uh you know eggs you know, these are things that 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 break down very quickly and, and become a good compost. And when it comes to compost, Leonard, um, you know, we're talking about trees, shrubs and perennials. We're also talking about vegetables. It's best to use that heavy compost on your vegetables because they're going to be your heavy feeders right off the bat where uh, uh, trees, shrubs and perennials are going to be slow feeders over time. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. And my guest is Pete Morosky, who is a nurseryman, environmentalist, owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. That's in Dutchess County, as he's pointed out. And uh, we are taking your calls at 212-209-2877. If you have any questions for Pete, I don't know if anybody is calling right now, but... Okay, let's take a call, and then I have some more questions for you, Pete. BAI, you're on the air. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hi. My name is Rose. I, I live in Flemington, New Jersey. Long-time Rodale um, person from the way back. Uh, I want to ask about beneficial nematodes and corn gluten meal as natural products, which will not uh, poison our waterways. And it, it kills the bugs um, as, they re as they emerge out of the ground. I have traditionally bought mine from a company in Colorado that will not ship until the, about the end of May because of, you know, they don't want the nematodes to freeze. Is there any source of beneficial nematodes 
in the tri-state area, for example, where we could get them a little bit earlier, get them on the ground around our properties so that the bug, you know, all these ticks and all these creepy crawlies coming out of the woods, uh, out of the ground, uh, the larvae are attacked. My neighbors used to come over to my place because I, I had all these pots. And um, they'd always say, gee, you have no Japanese beetles. Why is this? I was using beneficial nematodes. I was using corn gluten meal, as well as Coast of Maine, which is extraordinary compost. I bought it in a bag. Um, any, any sources of beneficial nematodes in the tri-state area that you know of? Well, Rose, you got to remember that nematodes have a very short shelf life, as, as your Colorado people are telling you. And, you know, if they were to give you your nematodes now and you were to put it in the ground, you know, it, it's a little too cold and they wouldn't be that active. You know, you can contact me ha here at Native Landscapes at uh, nlpauling at gmail.com or pete at nativelandscaping.net. And I have a few sources that I can turn you on to that will get you some nematodes uh, a little sooner than later. I like... I like the corn gluten, uh, too, because a lot of corn gluten is, is almost a natural herbicide because you can use corn gluten um, to get rid of a lot of uh, uh, crabgrass and, and, and broadleaf applications on, on your lawn. It's a lot safer than going the direction of, uh, you know, herbicides that are, that, are, that are really not the best for you. So I think you're heading down the right road with these nematodes and corn gluten and, um, you know, contact me and I'll, I'll see if I can get you some of these nematodes uh, earlier um, and at, at, a, at more of a local supply. But I remember, Pete, in the past that you also said that because many plants are susceptible to insects, uh, pests and diseases, uh, that we should choose insect and disease resistant plants. And I don't know if the caller uh, is aware of those, but what are some of the ones that you're recommending? Uh, as far as plants are concerned? Yeah, the, the ones that are, that are resistant to insects and diseases. Well, you know, one of the things that we should always be planting uh, if, we're, if we're doing a landscape is, is natives. Uh, mm -hmm. Natives have, you know, they're, they've been here for thousands of years. They require less fertilizers, pesticides, and, you know, they feed the, you know, the natural world. And, you know, you know, one of the things you got to understand, too, when it comes to, to planting is that a lot of these plants, um, you know, like I said, are not native. And, you know, their resistance isn't and, uh, uh, like, like the native plants. And, um, you know, you want to be careful also when it comes to planting that you plant the plant in, a, in an environment where it grows naturally. For instance, you know, you don't want to plant a rhododendron in a very... Uh, sunny, windy spot because she'll just rip the leaves off of it. You know, each plant has been developed with certain cultural requirements uh, in, in the natural world. And you want to mimic those requirements when it comes to your garden. So that's probably the most important thing. Don't try to force a plant to grow in an environment where it doesn't grow naturally. You know, try to find out where that plant grows naturally. And if you plant that plant in an environment where it does grow naturally, you're going to have less less problems with, with bugs and, uh, and diseases. Caller, is, is that okay? I guess she's gone. Okay, let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Yes, uh, I, heard, I uh, heard the guest refer to a rule of thumb. I thought he could say a rule of green thumb. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, use it, use it. A rule of green thumb. Oh, and this is a little, a little. I heard this a few days ago about he's talking about climate change, and they were saying that uh, the cherry blossoms haven't bloomed this early since the 1200s, the 13th century. And I thought that was so interesting. But of course, it, it's documented because it was in Japan, and they kept good records of the the cherry festival, the cherry blossoms. And so I'm kind of just wondering, it's, it's a little kind of a historic thing, like the record-keeping that, that goes back centuries. It was a way of looking at climate change and what was the weather like and how early was that bloom. They kept such good records in Japan. Do you do it all for, like, looking back at climate change, 
look at the records of the gardeners in Japan and you know what I'm saying? Yes, I do know what you're saying. And, you know, I, te- I keep weather records not so much uh, across the globe, but what's happening locally in, in my garden. And uh, like you said, I've noticed, you know, not only a, a warming trend, but, you know, uh, uh, weather being all over the place, you know, just, you know, if you remember last year, okay, uh, it, it was, we had a year basically without a winter. We didn't have much yeah. snow at all. The lakes didn't freeze. But this year, we had an old-fashioned winter where the lakes finally froze again. And, we, you know, we got two or three feet of snow this winter. So each year comes with its twists and turns based on this, you know, this new weather that we're getting. And, you know, you just got to run with it. Um, you know, I think it's affecting the natural world more than it is uh, humans at times because you got to remember a lot of these migrating birds, like I said before, are timing their migration around either hatches or blooms. And a lot of times because the weather is changing or maybe that plant or insect hasn't hatched yet because the res- weather isn't right, you know, that stops the birds in their tracks, especially birds like bluebirds. And they'll wait for those insects to come out because they can't continue if they have nothing to eat. So how important are birds, uh, and I'll, I'll throw in butterflies as well, uh, for the local gardener? Well, very important because they're they're the insects and and the animals that cross pollinate everything. You know, uh, Emma, my garden center manager, and I were having this conversation the other day, and you know, we put a lot of uh, orchards in, and you know, there's a couple of things uh, that you got to remember. You know, especially when it comes to different types of fruit trees, like apples, for instance. You know, you want to have two, three, four, or five different types of apple trees so that they cross-pollinate with one another, and uh, you get bigger and better fruit. That also exists with with plants like blueberries, okay? You don't want to have a a, a single type of blueberry plant. You might want to have a patriot or a blue jay and a few other types of blueberries in your garden because that cross-pollination that is conducted by a lot of the insects um, and and bees uh, and honeybees is, is going to give you a bigger and better fruit. A fruit, and I know Leonard, we talked about this a little bit last time on pawpaws, on how um, you know here's 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 a real kind of uh, twist on on pollination where the pawpaw gets pollinated by maggot flies, and that's what. Wait, creates- wait, wait, wait. Let's stop for a second and talk about pawpaws. They are an indigenous tree, right? Fruit that uh, kind of was really big when uh, Europeans came here and largely disappeared? It, they did. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people were, were, were digging them out of the woods, and, mm-hmm. and you know, they disappeared because uh, you know, people started digging them. Now, the pawpaw I don't know why. Been... I had pawpaw ice cream. I thought it was delicious. It is delicious. It is delicious. And um, you know, it's, it's, it's very banana-like. It's very custard-like. It really is an unusual – it's one of the bigger – uh, fruits, uh, native fruits in, in, in our eastern forest. And, you know, here's another great example that you need at least three pawpaw trees so that they cross-pollinate in order to get fruit. You can't have one or two because, you know, they don't, it's it, it just, it's it, you know, that, that, that whole mechanism doesn't work. It, it works when it gets pollen from three to five different types of trees working uh, to create a flower. You, you have a follow-up question, caller? I, okay. And, uh, I don't know if we have any more calls coming in right now, but um, we, uh, I, I wonder about, uh, you, you say that, uh, that planting is a, a matter of putting the right plant in the right location. Uh, plants that have adapted to the location that would be planted in. But how would we know that? Well, a lot of times when you go to the, the garden center, it, it, it has a tag on it. And that tag will tell you, you know, it likes shady, it likes wet. I mean, you think back of North America uh, back a thousand years ago, you know, when it was wilderness for the most part. And, you know, most of eastern North America was a was a far it was a deciduous or conifer forest. There wasn't a lot of open, sunny places. So many of our understory or shrub type uh, plants like it a little bit shady. So 
you know, you want to grab plants. If you've got a, if you've got a property that's in blasting sun, you want to bring in plants that like that type of environment that like it a little bit dry, that like that sun. If you have a property that maybe backs up to a pond or a swamp, you want to bring in plants that like wet feet, so to speak, like swamp azaleas and all those wonderful things that, that, you know, irises and all those wonderful things that grow in wet environments. So it's important that you know a little bit of science because as we all know, plants can be expensive and we don't want to waste our money. We want plants to thrive and, and colonize in our gardens. And in order to do that, we got to mimic what they've adapted to grow, growing it. Is there a way to incorporate uh, edible plants into uh, flower beds? Should they be put together? Of course they should, especially in areas or if you have a small property that really doesn't have room for a vegetable garden, what we tend to do a lot is bring in uh, a lot of uh, vegetables and shrubs into the landscape and are not only, not only will give you a fruit or a vegetable, but, will, but are also very ornamental. And we talked about the, um, the blueberry, for instance. You know, you know, here's a perfect example of what, how a blueberry will survive. It likes real acidic soil. So what you need to do is you need to make sure that your soil has a pH of 5.5 or in and around that, and that's when it'll survive. You know, blueberries don't really necessarily need a lot of fertilizing or rich soils. They like soils a little bit anemic, so to speak. But the important thing is, um, is you, that you give them acidic soils. And the nice part about blueberry is, you know, it gives you the berry, uh, in the summertime, in the spring, it has that beautiful flower. And in the wintertime, uh, in the fall, it has, it, the leaves turn a beautiful red. And, and, and in the wintertime, so do the stems. So you got four seasons interest in a plant that not only looks good, but that will feed you. We have a number of calls coming in. Our number here is 212-209-2877. If you want to speak to Pete Morosky, uh, we'll be back with those calls in just a moment here on New York and Company, let it located at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. But I'm not going to cut a single blade of grass. My garden will look just like the distant west. Before the days of agricultural land. And we're back with Pete Morosky, uh, the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. He's a nursery man and, and man and an environmentalist. And we are taking your calls at 212-209-2877. WBAI, you're on the air. Yes, good afternoon, gentlemen. Hi. It's me, right? Yeah, you. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. I have a question. Um, I was out there on my, uh, my front uh, yesterday. And last year, I have uh, some lilies out there, and there's this uh, bright red uh, uh, insect, look like a uh, look like a ladybug, and that thing ate up. <laughs> I mean, he went to town on my lilies out there, and he didn't bother a whole lot of other flowers with the lilies he did. And I see one yesterday. So I know they're back around. What yeah. can I do to, you know, to put, you know, to maybe I could spray the place because I do uh, natural stuff. I don't want no uh, pesticides or whatever. What can I do to, to, um, you know, to try to control that or, you know. What do you spray with? Soap? Well, I was, somebody told me to spray with some, um, get some water and some, what is it? Any type of uh, oil, a mm -hmm. tablespoon of oil or whatever, and shake it up, and maybe I could add some cayenne pepper, 
And but I didn't do that yet. <laughs> Excuse me. Pete? I didn't do that yet. Pete, what do you suggest? What I would do uh, is, um, you know, you, you said that you started to see the bugs out there a couple of days ago. Use mechanical methods first. And what do I mean? Go out there with a soapy bucket with a little bit of soap on the bottom and, and, and some water and, and, and put some gloves on and pick these bugs. And, and, and obviously they're hatching now, but pick these bugs mm -hmm. off the plant on a daily basis, throw them into the bucket and then throw them out or flush them down the toilet um that's the first thing i would recommend doing um as far as uh you know maintaining or trying to take care of an insect that's out there that if you don't want to use any pesticides you know it sounds like maybe this bug is coming out of the soil so checking it, it on is. a daily basis looking under the leaves and just checking it checking the plants thoroughly on 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 a daily basis is, is going to go a long ways in in, in controlling a, a lot of these um, leaf-eating insects. Yeah, but also they they fly. Mm. You know, they fly, so it's, it's like sometimes it's hard to, um, to catch really them. get them, you see? Yeah. I, I don't, you know, and they're not out there, you know, the the, um, the lilies have, they have started to come up, but, you know, they're not bloomed or whatever yet, so it's nothing really for me to be looking under, but I look in between, you know. Yeah, look under the, the leaves foliage. as they come up. Um, also, you know, if, if you're going to use a low-impact pesticide, you know, like you said, go with the oils. This is a good time of year to spray oil on your plants. Uh, if, if you if you got something like a scale uh, or, or mites, you get some soap uh, and spray. And, and try the low-impact pesticides first, and they should work. Um, and then, you know, take, if you can catch one of these things, you know, take them to the local garden center and ask them what, what they would recommend using um, and tell, tell them that you're organic and that you need something that's environmentally friendly. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Well, let's go to another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yeah, you. Oh, this is Evelyn from Great Neck, New York. Hi. And, uh, hi. I'm um, I'm homebound, and I have some plants on my windowsill which faces uh, let's see, what was it? It faces north and east. And during the afternoon, I get a lot of sun, and I have some plants, but I don't want to uh, raise some vegetables, organic. So I have a whole list of stuff. I don't know whether it's suitable for a windowsill <clears throat> growing. Red tomatoes. Can I grow them indoors? Sure you can. Yeah, make sure you got a big enough pot, and uh, you can either start them now from seed, or a lot of garden centers will start them for you, and then you can <clears throat> you can pick up the plant when it's four to six inches tall. Uh, just make sure you got the right soil, and, uh, you know, what if you've got plenty of sun. Need? What kind of soil do I need? Well, you need you need potting soil. You need, and a lot of times you can get a lot of potting soil that has already has the uh, the nutrients in them. It's like a composted potting soil made for vegetables. That's the direction okay. I would go when it comes to uh, growing now, vegetables inside. Now, yeah, now, now the other vegetables are cucumbers. Can I grow them indoors? Hmm. Do you really? Now, cucumbers can be a vine. Uh, how do you control their vininess? What do you say? I said it's a vine. Cucum cucumbers tend to grow in a vine. Um, um, do you let it crawl around? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I thought red leaf lettuce. Oh, lettuce is good too. Now lettuce, lettuce is like we were saying before, Lennon. Lettuce is very cold hardy, mm. so um, you can start these in the cool window. Uh, but it's important. The most important thing is that they all get a lot of sun. And right, that, uh, about, yeah, right. Yeah, and you have the proper. Have you got any started in the windowsill yet? No, I, I don't. All I right, well, I can. Yeah, I'll move away. Yeah, well, you know, have fun with it because it's <laughs> it's always it's always drums? nice to grow vegetables uh, inside the house. It's very rewarding. I have, I have a, a mushrooms. Organic mushrooms. 
Organic mushrooms? Yeah. Yeah. What? They like it they a little do. bit darker, though. Oh, they do. Okay. How about broccoli? <laughs> broccoli likes bright sun. You know, the more sun you can give it, the better. And that can tolerate a few frosts, too. I know you're not going to have much frost on the on your windowsill, but if you were to sneak them out uh, to the porch, uh, you know, they can tolerate a little bit of frost. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much for your call. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. Take care. Now, Pete, isn't this spring cleanup time? When's the best time to clean up beds? And uh, do we still leave last year's debris uh, for the insects and the birds? Well, I'm going to answer that question, Leonard, from ecological landscape point of view. And uh, if, if you're into, um, you know, what is going on naturally in your garden, you want to keep your leaves in your beds as late as possible because a lot of our insects uh, overwinter in leaf litter and, and in, in, in the, you know, the stalks and tubes of, um, of, of flowers and, and grasses. So you want to try, you know, like in the fall, uh, you know, don't clean it up really, uh, really thorough. Let the leaves lay in the beds. A lot of times, you know, uh, I talk to my customers and when we're blowing uh, the leaves off of the lawn, I tell them, you know, as long as it's not too thick, leave the leaves in the flower beds. Because what we're doing is we're mimicking Mother Nature. We're keeping, you know, we're that, that slow decomposition of, of leaf litter into the beds is, is a natural fertilizer. And we're keeping a lot of the beneficial insects alive that live in these leaves. Um, you know, a lot of people much, would much rather have a cleaner looking garden. And, you know, I tell them, you know, well, it, it all depends on what direction you want to go. If you, if you care about your environment, leave the leaves in the beds and, and and you can even put a little bit of mulch on top of them but you know leaves are a very important source of um of of, of food and 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 a hiding place for many beneficial insects that that live in our gardens and so spring cleaning should be a little less tidy because of the the uh the beneficial insects live and overwinter in in the leaf litter and uh should we? Well, we'll get back to that, but uh, I want to take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hello, it's you. Hi. Um, uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, uh, Pete is on because he's, uh, uh, to say the least, he's very knowledgeable. Uh, uh, and, see, I That's why we have him. Uh, but um, the, the, the thing is, uh, we have... Um, like a conifer, I think it's a, it's 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 that gold thread conifer. It's been in the pot for uh, maybe like five years, and you know I haven't had time to uh, 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 plant it out. So it so in the in the in the in the um, in the winter, like I I put it in the garage, and uh, it's it's living, it's doing well. But if if I want to plant it out, I would say that. Um, the, the roots are probably all like uh, growing around each other, and uh, I was wondering, should I cut the, the the root mass, cut some off, or should I use my hands to um, just uh, um, just uh, to spread it out? Um, and uh, I think Pete, you said that um, um, like um, don't don't use put any fertilizer in, but can I put you know like there's Plantone and hollytone. Can I put a little hollytone or plantone in there, or should I just uh, uh, um, just I also put a little peat moss. So should should I use those things, or should I just um, plant it uh, cold turkey? Well, it's a very good question that you're asking, and it has many many parts. And let me let me start from the beginning. Sounds like <clears throat> you got a camisiparis, a golden mop camisiparis, right. and it, um, you know, it likes, it wants to be outside year round. And, it, it, you know, it, it, it's time maybe to take it out of your container. Now, it all depends on how root bound uh, the, this plant is. If it's, like you said, if it's really encircling the container and really root bound, you may have to get a knife in there and score the roots. And believe it or not, this is a good time of year to do that because all plants are poised and ready to grow. They sense the days are getting longer. They know it's getting warmer outside. 
They want to do their thing and conduct photosynthesis. So the quicker you get that plant out of the container and in the ground, and, you know, because it's been in the container for such a long time and it hasn't really had a lot of nutrients, you know, get some uh, compost and, 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 and get some mulch and, you know, maybe doctor up the soil a little bit because the plant seems to be is probably a little bit anemic. Uh, when it when it uh-huh. when, when it gets out into the but, but landscape. No, no, no plant tone or holly tone. Holly tone is fine. Um, the reason why holly tone is so good, especially with needled evergreens, is because uh, it's got iron in it, and it also acidifies the soil. So okay. uh, you know, evergreens love iron. It, it makes them. It, it, it really brings their color out. So, yes, uh, yeah. you know, because it's coming from a container into the soil, you might want to doctor up the soil a little bit, um, you know, only because of the conditions that it's been growing in uh, since you've had it. And, you know, we're talking about evergreens a little bit and uh, uh, not to get off track. I'd like to talk to a little bit about evergreens because, you know, I was talking to an arborist not long ago and a lot, a lot of arborists are not recommending planting spruce trees or evergreens anymore, you know, let's say south of Maryland. You know, our climate has gotten so warm that spruce trees can't survive these hot, dry summers. And you'll notice that they're starting to decline in the Piedmont of the East Coast. You know, like I said, south of Maryland through the Carolinas, you just can't get spruces to grow anymore. I mean, in the mountains, they'll grow. But, you you know, right once again, like we said before, right plant in the right location. Colorado spruces are having a very tough time here on the East Coast. Why? Because they grow on the north side of the Rocky Mountains and the only moisture they get is from snowmelt. So when you bring a Colorado spruce to the East Coast, we get too much rain and the soil is too wet. So you, you can't really plant Colorado spruces, you know, white pines, uh, uh, white spruces, um, you know, hemlocks. You know, these are the plants that from an evergreen, from a needled evergreen standpoint, just love being in a colder climate. And up by us uh, in Dutchess County, you know, spruces love it up here. Hemlocks love it up here. And so do um, so do white pines. So, you know. As you, as you get into colder climates, that's when evergreens really uh, 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 create a great show. Yeah, I'm, I'm 12 miles, 14 miles from uh, from the Pennsylvania border in uh, yeah. northern New Jersey. But anyway, my, my second and last question um, and um, is uh, we, ha- we, we have a, a well water, at, uh, and there's kind of like, Outside, there's kind of like a long, elongated, I don't know, an object. And if you open it up, or if uh, some some uh, some guy comes to open it up, you see like water. You see like water in there, and 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 uh, they have uh, you know like something that leads to the house. But I'm I'm just wondering if um if uh, you see like some of the neighbors, some of the neighbors that they're, they're like two acre lots. I'm wondering if some of the neighbors they uh, they put um, they they put herbicides on because uh, like we we like we get like um, uh, postcards in the mailbox telling us um, telling us uh, you know like oh you know do you know put put herbicides on on, on your uh, on your lawn but now they're they're changing to or, they're saying organic herbicides that 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 you know but I was wondering if um, I don't get a water test but I wonder, but I, I still wonder if um, if the herbicide is getting into the well. Well, that's a good question, and a lot of these herbicides are getting into groundwater. I mean, you look at Long Island, for instance. You know, Long Island has three aquifers. Two of their three aquifers are polluted with uh, pesticides that are running off of lawns and sure. and and off of the old farms. So, you know, there's a big push on Long Island to try to do more organic. And, you know, as our previous caller said, corn gluten is an organic herbicide. But, you know, I'm not a big fan of pesticides. And, you know, I'm going to give you an example. My lawn, for instance, has violets growing in it, 
has little chickweed growing in it. It almost looks like a mini perennial garden. I mean, there's no need to have a monoculture lawn unless you have a golf course. And all these chemicals <laughs> that you're putting in the lawn are not, you know, they're, they're not doing Mother Nature any good, you know. The, the, the animals are eating a lot, you know, the raccoons that are wandering around, the deer, and all these animals that graze on your lawn, you know, it, it can't be doing them any good either. So my recommend, rec my recommendation to you was try to stay away from the herbicides. And if you want a lawn with a little bit more needled grass, put more seed out on the lawn. This is a great time of year to, to, to rake out all the old and dead uh, grass now in the fall, now and then again in the fall, and really seed the heck out of your lawn. And that's going to bring uh, more uh, 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 needled uh, uh, grass, uh, and 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 then you'll get away from a lot of the broadleaves. But I'm a, I'm a big fan of clover in my lawn. I mean, so are my rabbits that live in my property. You're listening to Let It Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Pete Moroski, who's uh, the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. He's a nurseryman and environmentalist and a regular on our program. And uh, you, uh, you kind of, uh, well, a couple of things I want to address. You kind of discourage the use of fertilizers. Aren't there times when fertilizers are appropriate? And if that's the case, uh, should they only be natural or is there anything wrong with synthetic fertilizers? Well, plants will tell you when they need fertilizer. They're, Generally speaking, they'll 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 have they'll have a chlorotic condition, which means that they're turning yellow, um, which means that they need some nutrients. Um, and a lot of times, it's just a it, the compost will, will do the trick. I think when it comes to our landscape, if we change some of our cultural practices, in other words, go with more of a natural mulch. And, and, and prune things the way they're supposed to be pruned and put the right plant in the right location for your particular area, you know, you're going to get rid of a lot of these, you know, chlorotic and, and ugly conditions that, 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 that plants uh, can give you. Now, from a fertilizer standpoint, you know, I, I very seldom do I recommend going with synthetic fertilizers. That's like, uh, okay. you know, that, you know, you want to go with a more natural, slow release. Every time it rains a little bit more, a little bit more uh, nutrients are, 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 are into the, are go into the ground. And, you know, you want the synthetic fertilizers are a quick hit. And, and, and when you give up, when you give plants synthetic fertilizer, you know, they, they're going to want more and they're going to want more. It's just, it's just one of those things that, you know, they need to have more of it. And it, but they become addicted. A, they become addicted. But if you give yeah. it a natural fertilizer, it's a slow release. You know, they know, Oh, here comes the rain. I'm going to get a little bit more food this time. And they're okay with that. But, but Pete, Pete, hit, yeah, we have very little time left. Uh, I can't get to all the calls. I'm going to try to sneak one more call in here before we run out of time. Uh, Caller, you're on the air, but you have to make it very quick. Yes, hi. Yeah, quick observation. I'll get off. I'm just noticing every year the oak, oak leaves on my property here in Nassau County, New York, are dropping later and later in the season, and obviously the world is getting hotter. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, I guess we can take another call after all. Okay, BAI, you're on the air. Yes, hi. Quick. This is John L. I'm calling. Thank you so much. Um, Pete, I have a quick question concerning mold spores for outdoor plants. Um, I don't know how much you will know. I can call you directly um, if you can give me your number. But I have infestation. I've been trying everything to try to get rid of them in the household. I'm spending a whole lot of money, and I'm not getting any answers from anyone because they don't seem to understand what it is. Just you, you can't really see it. Okay, so Pete, how does she get in touch with you? She writes to what? Uh, Pete at nativelandscaping.net. Okay. Excellent. And I will call you on this. Thank you, Pete. Really appreciate it. And I'm getting ready to become a subscriber to this network. Oh, I so appreciate that. We need all the help that we can get. Uh, just, just one more thing. You suggest that we, we don't pull weeds? Uh, 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 well, you know, weeds tend to. That we stay should cut them instead. 
cut the cut the tops off instead because the the the, the roots stabilize the soil and you want to you know you want to keep the soil from eroding and and running away so you know the new thinking from a weeding standpoint is rather than pulling the weeds and open the soil opening the soil to many other weed seeds to hoe the weeds mm. or, or 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 keep them at ground level so that and and eventually the weeds will die because they can't conduct photosynthesis but you're going to keep that soil structure in place and you're going to keep the weed seeds out. Well, glad to know that. And thank you, Pete, Pete Morosky. You will be seeing you again soon on the show because uh, a lot more growing <laughs> coming up soon. Uh, Pete Morosky is a nursery man and environmentalist and the owner of native landscapes and garden center in Pauling, New York. It's, it's always a pleasure, Pete. Thank you, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you are new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are available. And there are also links to all of our past shows at the LeonardLopateAtLarge.com website. If you'd like to comment on any of our shows or you just want to say hello, you can reach me directly. My email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support WBAI. We're hoping that all of our listeners who have the means to do so will step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now so that we can keep bringing you these unique, in-depth, long-form interviews that you won't hear on any other station coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And uh, if you can see your way to becoming a BAI buddy, that would be really great. A sustaining member uh, who um, contributes 10 or 15 or $20 a month uh, for as long as you wish. And a reminder that a referendum is coming up. Uh, rewriting Pacifica bylaws. If you'd like to participate, it's only available for paid-up members. So I hope that if you're not already a member, uh, you will uh, meet the deadline, which is tomorrow, uh, by paying the $25 annual dues via credit card or debit card, or by becoming a sustaining member or a member any other way. You don't have to limit it to $25. Uh, maybe you, you want to become uh, a member at the station for $150, $200, whatever you're comfortable with. Because remember that BAI is the only station on the New York radio dial that's completely listener-sponsored. We don't take ads. We don't take um, funding from any other source. Only uh, depend on our listeners. So please do your part by making that call right now uh, in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. Again, the number is... 212-209-2950. You can go online to give to WBAI.org. And to everyone who has already stepped up to show their support during this terrible pandemic, thank you. We hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when senior scholar at the Institute for Poli Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., Chuck Collins, will discuss his latest eye-opening book called The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. We'll see you then. <laughs>